Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I have to tell you, in every seminar, every workshop, and just about every coaching engagement I do, I, you know, we're always talking about topics of feedback or difficult conversations or how to have hard conversations. And somewhere along the line, I find myself deep in debate with people about the challenges of working across different generations, Generation X, Millennials, Baby Boomers, and plus now Gen Z. Now, that conversation tends to take a life of its own, and if I'm lucky, we get to contain it and close it up in some general way. But mostly, I'm finding people have so much emotion around this multi-generational issue, they don't want to stop talking about it. I also find that there's a lot of myths and a lot of negative perceptions going around on all sides of the equation, and I think that's getting in our way. So after loads of these conversations, my conclusion is we really need a new way to understand the core issues, to reframe the debate, and think differently about the generations in the workplace. And that's what we're going to do today. My guest is Lindsay Pollock. Lindsay is a New York Times bestselling author, three times over, I might add, a keynote speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on millennials and multi-generational workforce. Her newest book, The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in Multigenerational Workplace, is getting lots of positive reviews. Her last two books, Getting from College to Career and the best one, Becoming the Boss, New Rules for the Next Generation of Leaders. Clearly, she's been around this subject about multigenerations for a long, long time. She's the official ambassador at LinkedIn, or was, and is a millennial workplace expert for the Hartford and the chair of Cosmopolitan's Millennial Advisory Board, um, and is a resident of New York. So, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. This topic seems to be one everybody wants to talk about more and more and more. So let's start with this notion. Before I get started, I think everybody gets confused about how to define baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials, Gen Z. And I know there's some discrepancy in the literature. So what's your basic definition of each of those generations? Wanda, I'm so glad you started with that question because that is the one I get most often. This stuff is hard to wrap your head around, and I promise you, if you're listening to this, you did not miss this day in high school. This is not something (laughs) that we were taught. It's very much kind of an art, not a science. And I'll, I'll start by saying that the only generation to officially be defined by the United States Census Bureau, for those listening in the U.S., is the baby boomer generation, who are designated as born between 1946 and 1964. So everyone agrees on that one. I choose to put my trust in the Pew Research Center. I think that their work and their statistics and their year definitions are the most reputable. They define traditionalists or the silent generation as those born before 1946. Boomers are 46 to 64. Generation Xers like me were born 1965 to 1980. Millennials are also known as Generation Y. Gen Y is a much more common term outside of the United States. Here in the U.S., they're defined as those born 1981 to 1996. 
and Generation Z, which are the newest group on the block, are born 1997 and later. Now, there's not like one day at the hospital where they decide that one person is the very last millennial and the next is the first Gen Z. So a lot of people feel, especially if they're born on a year that's kind of on the cusp between two, we call them cuspers, but they're a little bit of both. So those are the official year definitions by Pew, but I also really leave it up to individuals to self-identify with a generation if they do. Yeah. I hear that all the time. I mean, in a classroom, you know, anymore you will ask who is which with group and which with another group, just so I get a sense of what the room is about. And I get millennials in particular who don't like the labeling millennials, and they'll often identify with a different generation than just that millennial. Are you finding the same thing? I am, and I always joke, I was in a session yesterday where I say that's so millennial of you to not want to identify as a millennial (laughs) because it's a very self-defining, more individualistic or um, self-image-minded generation. So boomers are most likely to identify, I think, in many ways, because that term has been quite positive in our society. Gen Xers are a little less likely to like or identify with that term. And most millennials, I agree with you, say, you know, please, I don't want to be called millennial. I don't want to be called Gen Y. I just want to be seen as a unique individual. Okay. All right, and we'll already start on the um, judgments and opinions about various generations <laughs> accordingly. Yes. All right, now do you have a like a way that you describe the common characteristics for each of the generations? I do, and I do it with an enormous caveat, which is that everyone is a unique individual and must, must, must be perceived that way. The way I see generational identity is that it can help provide clues to how somebody might see the world. So just like cultural differences, if someone is from a certain country, you might see some cultural differences or you might not. I think we're all much more similar than we are different. So with all of that said, traditionalists tend to be known for pride and loyalty. 50% of men of that era served in the military. So that is sort of a model, I think, for that, quote, greatest generation. Baby boomers are very competitive, very large, often a very optimistic generation. If you think of the civil rights movement, if you think of marches on Washington, you think of very large collective events to try to change the world. That means that people work together and fight together, but they also can be uh, very competitive about the fact that there's so many baby boomers. And it's really important to note that boomers were the largest generation in the U.S. for about 50 years. They're the very largest generation ever born, even larger than the millennials. So that size means that they've been tremendously influential on our culture. Gen Xers like me, we were the baby bust following in the shadow of that huge boomer generation. Uh, There's 76 million boomers born in the U.S. just for reference and only 55 million Gen Xers, so significantly smaller. So we tend to be a little bit more pessimistic, maybe a little bit more cynical, very independent. I think kind of our stereotype is the latchkey kid who came home to an empty house and microwaved ourselves a snack and played video games and on our personal computers. So we're also kind of the tech pioneers. Millennials are known very similarly, I think, to boomers as also being very collective, but also very self-image focused. And I think the model for that is Facebook or social media, the selfie-taking generation. Um, They tend to get criticized for that. But in a lot of ways, I think they're very empowered to truly feel that one person can make a difference. And that's one of my favorite characteristics of millennials. But 
Xers are quite similar to traditionalists. Baby boomers are more similar to millennials. And what we're seeing with Gen Z, I think, is a really big focus on diversity and kind of the blending of identities. So you see a lot more young people identify as multi-ethnic, um, as being on a gender continuum uh, of not wanting to be identified with a political party or with a religion or any sort of label. Um, so I think that's something that you're really going to start to see with the teenagers and younger children today. Again, please take all these with a grain of salt, but culturally, that's how the definitions tend to be described. That's interesting. I, I'm intrigued by the notion that you say that baby boomers and millennials tend to be more alike and Gen X and traditionalists tend to be more alike. Any speculation on why? So I think it has to do with two things. Um, generational size, I think, is very determinative. So boomers and millennials were born at a time where they were dominant, right? There's so much attention on the boomers and the millennials. So, you know, I've had people say, I didn't even know there was a Generation X. Wow, <laughs> you know, I've never heard people talk about them. So, you know, to me, you're sort of the popular kids, right, or the majority um, at the time of your generation. Certainly, I think boomers feel that way. Boomers are also the parents of most millennials. So you often are growing up in, you know, somewhat of the identity of your parents. Gen Xers are often the children of traditionalists or silent generation or the very, very oldest baby boomers. And um, the generation size also tends to follow the economy. So if you think of traditionalists growing up in the Great Depression, you think of Gen Xers experiencing the recessions and energy crisis of the 70s, and then boomers growing up in the post-war boom time experiencing that, millennials growing up um, in the dot-com boom, right, and the kind of go-go-go 80s. Uh, Gen Zs, I think, will be more similar to their Gen X parents growing up during uh, the aftermath of 9-11 and the global financial crisis. So I think it has to do with generational size and the economic circumstances, which certainly aren't the same for everybody, but the general mood of the country is really quite different based on how the economy is when you're coming of age. Okay. Now, some of those events that you described are quite global, so the Depression certainly hit everybody and the dot-com boom and bust hit everybody. Uh, is there differences across countries, or this is pretty much a global phenomena? Such an interesting question, and really depends on which regions of the world that you're talking about. So what is universal is every country, every culture has the concept of generations, right, because they come from a family, great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and so on. Um, there's a, a really neat chart that Deloitte put out that compares all the different generational breakdowns around the globe. What's interesting is for most previous eras, the timelines were different. For instance, in China, it's the children of the 80s, the children of the 90s, the children of the 2000s. Um, in certain countries like India, you know, the moment of Indian independence is obviously a real division line between generations. So a lot has to do with each individual country. What I find really fascinating is that many countries are starting to align generationally with the millennials, or also known as Gen Y, because of the internet and primarily Facebook. A lot of people call them the first global generation because they could communicate globally so much more easily than we could have because they have that tool and that shared experience of social media. So I think it'll be really interesting moving forward to see how we think about generations globally. In the past, we didn't compare you know, people born in the U.S. in the 1940s necessarily to people born in other countries. You know, some countries share experiences, some don't, but they're starting to align a little bit more. And what's really interesting is maybe 
10 years ago, I've been doing this work for a long time, I used to talk to people in Western Europe. And they'd say, oh, millennials, that's such an American thing. You know, we don't have any of those generational challenges here. And then a couple of years ago, they started to call and say, yeah, we have those challenges now. So we really want to talk about it. So I think that um, a lot of this is being experienced, certainly in unique ways, um, to the cultures of other countries. But generational conflict and technological change and everything that goes with it is certainly something that I think most cultures would um, have experienced, even if they use different terminology for each of the generational cohorts. Right. I like your notion, too, that at least historically, there would have been individual events in different regions or in different countries that would have been defining moments for a generation. And those might not be global. But going forward, especially with millennials and Gen Z, they may well be global, global phenomena. Okay, we've talked a lot, excuse me, a lot about differences. Let's focus a bit on solutions. So one of the things that I find, excuse me, is that when I'm talking with people, there's a lot of animosity about that other generation and that other generation being wrong in some way. Um, And I'm sure you've heard a lot of the same terms that I have on either side of it. What are you seeing? And more importantly, what's making a difference? So I love that you brought that up. And one of the things that I really advocate for is we have to stop the generational shaming. And it goes in every direction, to your point. This is an issue of diversity. And so I think that in some ways, you know, I really think about this quite strongly. The things that we say in particular that you hear older generations saying about millennials, they're entitled, they're narcissistic, they're lazy, they don't have a good work ethic we would never stand for that kind of discrimination against any other group of people. You know, if I said, oh, all women are so lazy or, you know, all people from this country don't have a good work ethic, that's just not acceptable. But somehow when it's about age, we lash it off. I really think that that behavior and discussion has to stop. So the very first thing I advise any company or individual I work with is you have to let go of that. And that includes making fun of yourself, right? Saying something like, I'm old enough to be your grandmother. You know, why are we sitting here having this business meeting? Or I'm such a Luddite, I can't learn that app. We all have to be a little bit more adaptable than we've ever been before. Um, and the, the title of my new book, The Remix, is a metaphor for that. But the reason I chose that title is I want people to think similar to a remix song where you take a classic of an older generation and the musician or the producer mixes in something new to modernize it. That's sort of the message I have because you're not saying that the classic is wrong or outdated or should be thrown away and you're not saying the new is better. What you're saying is that the combination of the old and the new can be really, really powerful. And and my favorite moment when I was researching the book was I interviewed some DJs about the concept of remixes. And what several of them told me is that a little secret that DJs have is when you're playing a wedding or a a party of any kind and you want to get people on the dance floor, the trick is to play a remix because the older people at the party will come and dance because they know the classic and the younger people will come and dance because they know the modern version. So everybody feels included. And that's kind of the image that I want people to have in their minds of the old and the new coming together so that everybody feels included. Okay, I love that metaphor because the combination sounds really, really powerful, sounds really interesting. And the idea of I get on the dance floor, old and young coming together Mm -hmm. like it. Now, you got to help me translate what does that actually look like? So can you give me an example of what that might be? Absolutely. How do you actually do that? 
So I think what it comes down to is we have to stop thinking of a zero-sum game that one side wins and one side loses. So, for example, the classic, quote, old model of an office is that everybody has a door and there are cubicles and you sit in your spot. And the new version is this sort of open office. Nobody has a spot. It's kind of a free-for-all. Well, there's a lot of gray area in the middle. And the companies that I admire with a multi-generational workplace where it's working in actual workspace is when they create different kinds of spaces in an office. So perhaps there's a quiet room where nobody talks on the phone and you can sit at tables like a library. And then there are phone booth areas. You can even take a converted storage room closet and make those phone rooms for other people. There are open areas. There are closed areas. There are offices that you can sign out if you need them, but you don't have to if you don't want to. It's about creating options for people. The same goes for career passing, right? The traditional model is up or out. Everybody gets promoted, you know, in a ladder progression. I think the new model is not that nobody gets promoted and everybody's exactly equal. It's about more mobility and and what some companies call a lattice career or jungle gym as opposed to a ladder where people can go in different directions. Some can go straight up if that's what they want. Others can make lateral moves, can switch departments. What you're doing is creating more options and personalization for people, not saying it's either 100% the old way or 100% the new way. And that's what I call remixing is creating those additional paths and options for people rather than making them choose. Okay. Does that make sense, Wanda? It makes a ton of sense. And I like that image, particularly I love that image about the career mobility that you have multiple ways. We might all still want to get to some higher level, but the timeline, the route, the path, everything can look quite different in getting there. I like that metaphor. That seems a great one for me. Now, but too many times we sit in a large company and we worry about control. You know, will I have people going in the right directions? Will I know what everybody's doing? Can I manage everybody's performance? We get our head focused around control, and that makes it harder to open up possibilities because you feel like you're losing control. So what's your response to that? You are absolutely right, and there is a loss when there is change. And I have talked to many people, my Gen X peers and baby boomers, who liked the old way, and were very, very happy with it. So I have a lot of empathy for people who played the game the old way and said, but why is it changing now? You know, I I think that we have to accept it um, and not have too much nostalgia for the way things used to be. I think that's the first step is to acknowledge that there is a loss here. When it comes to the sense of control, I think there are two things to think about on a, a corporate level or organizational level. We do have the advantage of technology today, which allows us to use models and software to really keep track of a lot of these issues, the mobility issues, the different kinds of career paths that people follow. We can track the data I picture it on, you know, like an Amazon.com. You know, if somebody held this public relations coordinator role, these are the six different places that they might have gone after that, kind of like products you might buy if you liked this one. I've seen some companies really try to act like Amazon in that way. So technology can be a help. The second thing I would say is that some organizations are benefiting from giving a little bit more control and discretion to individual managers. So the companies are setting the guidelines, for instance, on something like uh, remote work. I worked with one law firm that said, we really want our employees to have more flexibility, but it's really hard, you know, 
There are different court cases. There are different clients. We cannot have one blanket remote work policy that's going to work for everyone every day. So they set general guardrails that you can have up to one day a week at the manager or in this firm, law firm partner's discretion. What that meant was there were teams where people were working from home two, three days a week. They didn't have to change what was working for them. But the people who were being held back by managers who had an old-fashioned mentality about work or the people who were too afraid to ask their bosses, they now had a guideline of what was sanctioned by the company for them to participate in. So I think when companies set general guidelines or guardrails that allow for some manager discretion and discretion based on the work and the clients and the customers, that can be really, really valuable. Uh, The same goes for something like vacation days. I'm not a fan of unlimited vacation policies, nor am I a fan of really restrictive ones. What a lot of companies say is, you know, we have a policy that you can take Um, you know, as many days as you need, but the average person takes three weeks or the average person takes 20 days. You have to give people something to work around while allowing for some flexibility on the edges. But yeah, to your point, it takes a little bit of uh, giving up of control. And that's really hard for some people. But I think that the ship has sailed. There are too many companies that are allowing for flexibility in particular, that the old model of having total control of your employees, I think just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Well, at least in today's economy, people aren't sticking with you. They don't need to. There are plenty of jobs. It's too easy to move. That may change if the, suddenly the economy starts to turn, heaven forbid. But for now, we're in a buyer's market in terms of our employers, employees' market, I should say. So it's too easy to, too easy to go someplace else and try something different. Okay, so I get your framework that it's remix. It's a bit of the old and a bit of the new. Everybody feels included, which I think is an important phrase to keep in mind. And then it's about having guardrails, guidelines, general tendencies, averages, expectations, if you will, and then some discretion around um, interpreting those, at least at the manager level. I think a lot of managers would appreciate that because they, you know, being told how to manage is not necessarily any better than being told when you can have your vacation days. Now, I want to shift gears, though, just a tiny little bit, because um, just before we take a break, when you talk, how do you talk about leading in a multi-generational workplace? You've talked about this from a policy point of view. What about for me as an individual manager trying to lead? What's your advice? Individual managers, in many ways, I think need to lead in what I would characterized as a coaching mentality as opposed to a general of the military or a command and control style of leadership. I think what works in the modern workplace is to consider oneself to be a coach. I am far from the first person to talk about this or characterize it this way, but it makes the most sense to me. And what I find over and over again is the leaders who were good at leading other generations are really good at leading millennials and Generation Z. Um, Google did a great study that you're probably familiar with called Project Oxygen, where they use data to find what actually characterizes a good manager that people stick with, to your point, that they want to work for, and actually makes a difference to improving business results. And what they found is it's people who make one-on-one time for their teams, who genuinely want the best for their employees, and develop them and really care about their progression. They feel that if they're coaching people to success, 
then they win as well, very similar to a coach of a sports team. I don't think any of that is revolutionary or modern or high tech. I think it's about caring about your employees and taking time to think about your management. What's happened over time, and I think this goes right to your point about people are willing to leave today, is I think we had a lot of people who never learned how to be a good manager, and we promote people you know, to whatever level of achievement that they have. And then we say, now you're going to manage other people. There was a great study in the Harvard Business Review that said the average person becomes a manager of other people at age 30. And the age at which people receive their first leadership training is around age 42. So there's this huge gap, you know, take that or leave it. It's not true for everybody. But most people have never been taught how to be good leaders. And I think what's happening with millennials in particular is they have tools like Glassdoor. They have the internet and social media where if they don't feel that they have a good manager or have good leaders, not only are they going to leave the organization, but they're very likely to go public about it and complain publicly. So I think millennials want the kind of leaders all of us have always wanted. We just kind of put up with not having good people leaders. We thought that's just the way it was. And I think millennials are really forcing people, managers, and leaders to step up their game. But the actual qualities and actions of those leaders, I don't think has changed all that much. Yeah, I think you're right. We can go back in 40, 50 years of what makes for effective managers. Effective mean people stay with them. There's good performance. They get good results, all the kind of things that you ultimately care about. Um, and they get good evaluations, good ratings, and you'll get the same set of qualities. And I don't think those set of qualities have changed one bit, and they're very consistent with the Google data. What's interesting, though, is that millennials are now getting us all to, they're forcing the change, whereas Gen X would say, wait a minute, I wanted that too, but it didn't happen. That's exactly right. Right. I'm going to put a plug in for our managers, though, here just for a moment, because I think we've also been unfair to managers. In that we have asked them to do more and more and more jobs as individuals and to be experts for longer and longer and longer periods in their career. And basically, they have not had time to manage. So not only have they not been taught or given any tools to do it, we've squeezed their time so badly that this notion of taking time to care is sort of hard to come by some days, many days. Doesn't make an excuse. I just think it makes it a valid observation that, okay, we have to factor this one into the equation as well. Okay, one more question before we take a break on this one. Now, coaching mentality. We can have two different forms of coach. I can have the image of the coach that is sort of the kicking and screaming and motivates by really getting after me and getting under my skin and pushing me hard, kind of aggressively almost. But can also have the image of the coach that's more nurturing and caring and friend-like. Do both models work? Normally, I like mixes and compromises. In this case, I feel very strongly that it is quite rare that the aggressive disciplinarian coach works with the younger generations today. Certainly, there are people who like that. But for the most part, and you see this in a lot of stories out there now, even about pro sports teams with the younger generation that has grown up with social media, 
uh, which has likes and immediate feedback all the time, that has shorter, faster bits of information and has more attention generally as children than previous generations did. There's so many studies that parents spent much more time with millennials and Gen Zs than previous generations got from the adults in their lives. I think with millennials and Gen Z, the vast majority of young people prefer a coach who is nurturing and genuinely cares about them and wants the best for them. That does not mean that you can't still hold people accountable and be very strict in your requirements. For example, uh, there was a football coach who said, you know, the young people today, they still have to run the same drills. They have to learn the playbook. They have to eat healthy. They can't go out late at night before games. But what I learned is they don't respond to yelling. They don't respond to being shamed or to being humiliated in training. They want shorter meetings so that they can check their social media accounts. And what he said was, you know, I'm not changing my style because I want to be sweet to them or I want to coddle them. Often people say, oh, these millennials just want to be coddled. What he said is, what I want to do is what works. And what works for the younger generations is usually more of a positive reinforcement model. Not all of them, but that is more in line with their life experience so far. So as a manager, I think you have to default to what actually gets the results that you want. And I think it's much more of the second model you said of support and coaching and genuinely caring about your people. Fabulous. I love that one. Um, It is an interesting debate about coaching, I think. But I like that your sports coach who says, I'm going to do what works. We're still going to have disciplines and accountability and expectations and requirements that are consistent everywhere. But if more positive reinforcement, shorter meetings works to get the results, then why wouldn't we all adopt them? Why would we change? Why would we fight against that trend? All right. We're going to take a break at this point. With me today is Lindsay Pollack. Lindsay is a New York Times bestselling author of three books, a keynote speaker and one of the world's leading experts on millennials. The book we've been talking about is called The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multigenerational Workplace. When we come back, I want to pick up on this notion about millennials being positive and deal with the stereotype about aren't they overly positive and what should we do about it? We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. 
These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Lindsay Pollock, and the book we've been talking about is Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. I think, Lindsay, the thing that I am most intrigued by or most important to me of all that you said in this last one is this, in this last segment, is this notion that we really do have to stop shaming different generations, including ourselves, and not using really negative words to describe the other generation or pretend that we're not capable of changing an adaptation. I love the idea of remix, that you take some of the old and mix it with the new. And what we're really doing, what you're really talking about is creating variety, some guidelines, some rules, some standards and expectations, some discretion about how managers deploy that, and then um, adaptation, just shifts in that make everybody happy or along the way. Now, we were also talking about the power of coaching and the importance of coaching is being not because it's supposedly right, but because it works. And I think that's a great standard to hold up against. And we ended on talking about positive. And you said that millennials um, do want more nurturing that they've had parents spend more time with them, that they need shorter meetings so that they can check their social um, media, and that they like the positive reinforcement. So let's deal with that issue. A lot of people I talk to feel like millennials are overly positive, that everybody gets a trophy thing. So how do you think about that? How should we deal with that? Everyone gets a trophy. I want to talk about that because you're right. That is one of the biggest complaints and irritations of other generations. And I want to share with you something that a millennial said to me very seriously, and I'd encourage all members of other generations to think about it. He said, you know, we didn't give the trophies to ourselves. Adults kept giving them to us. So we're blaming millennials for the culture in which they were raised. A lot of millennials say, all those participation trophies are gathering dust in my parents' basement. I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I didn't ask to be rewarded for participation. A lot of them, and not all, everybody's different, but I've had so many young people say, please don't criticize me for the way that I was parented or the way the education system was when I was growing up. So I'll give you a really practical example of how this comes out and and where I think you find the balance. A lot of people say exactly what you said. You know, I I get that you want it to be positive, but that just feels like coddling to me. I don't want to lead that way. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. There's so much resistance. And I think you have every right as a leader or a manager to say to an employee, a millennial or any generation, I'm going to throw you into the deep end on this one. I want you to learn the hard way. That's how I learned. 
But number one, you can do it in a positive way. You don't have to scream at people. And number two, what coaching means to me is I don't just throw you in the deep end. I put context around it and say, Wanda, I'm going to throw you in the deep end on this one. I want you to figure this out. I give you enough information so you understand what I'm doing rather than making you feel blindsided and angry and confused. So to me, coaching doesn't mean that you have to coddle. It just means that you have to explain where you're coming from. And really, really importantly, you have to explain why you're treating someone the way you are or giving them the kind of direction that you are. But, you know, leaning back on this, oh, you just want a trophy for participation. I think that's laziness on the part of a manager of not wanting to do the hard work of leading. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting turn. And I can imagine a couple people saying, ouch, on that one. And yeah. I think there's some truth. I think when we get frustrated as managers and we just throw it at somebody and say, figure it out. If you're good enough, you'll get it. It's because I'm out of time or I'm out of patience or I don't have the capacity to think about it or I don't know myself. One of the things I off. find myself saying a lot is I, nothing I'm saying is super complicated. And I think if I gave anyone a test and said, you know, yes or no, should you shame your young people? Everyone's going to say that no is the right answer. But the question is, when you're frustrated, when you're annoyed, when you're busy, when sales are down, are you still going to make the right choices? And I think that's what we really need to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Now, in your book, you do a lovely comment about this trophy, um, which just struck me as wonderful. You say... So if everybody wants a trophy, what's wrong with giving everybody a trophy? You want to to clarify that one as well? Yeah, the problem is not giving a trophy. The problem is giving a trophy when it's not deserved. And so I think what a lot of us do is say, oh, these young people, they just want trophies of participation, so I'm going to give them nothing. And I'm never going to tell them when they're doing a good job. And I'm never going to acknowledge or thank them. There was one law firm that gave all the partners a stack of thank you notes every quarter and said, send these to people. And they resisted and said, that's a trophy for participation. And the human resources people said, not if you're thanking somebody for good work, not if you're thanking them for going above and beyond. It's not the trophy that's the problem. It's giving a trophy for no reason. So I really encourage people not to react by not thanking people and acknowledging them, but to absolutely use carrots and rewards and gratitude for people because it makes you feel good. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. All of us would like it. I think in your your research, do you say 60% of every generation would like more thank yous and more kudos and feedback? And 40% of every generation doesn't necessarily want it. Did I get that straight? Yeah, that's right. So a a study found that uh, 72% of millennials said that they wanted feedback from their managers daily or weekly. And that sounded really high, right? 72% want feedback daily or weekly. But then they asked everybody else and all the rest of us, 60% said we want it daily or weekly. That's not that big a delta. What stood out (laughs) to me is that 30 to 40% don't want it at all. And so that just shows you that some people don't want it. And a quick example, I worked with a nonprofit that had employee of the month and I said, how, did, how does that go for you? And they said, well, it goes one of two ways. Somebody either comes in on the day that they're winning employee of the month and they bring their family and they take selfies and they post to social media and they bring balloons and have a big party. The other half of people take a day off, a sick day, when it's supposed to be their day to win it. And I said, what that says to me is some people find that very rewarding and other people don't want that kind of reward. So another tip for the Remix Workplace is you have to really ask your people What really incentivizes you? For one person, it might be a $1,000 bonus. 
for a working parent, it might be to have Friday afternoons off. So really understanding what motivates people and what truly feels like a trophy can be very different based on your generation or even just based on your personality type. Personality, yeah. I think that's a really important thing. There's a self-assessment that I often use called FIRO-B or the more modern version, the human element. One of the characteristics looks at warmth, openness, and praise. So how much praise do I want and how much am I willing to give? And no surprise here, people fall on both ends of the spectrum. I don't want much and I'm not going to give much. And I want a lot and I'm going to give a lot. And you can see that those two just go at loggerheads with each other in any workplace because one feels like you're being mean and critical and uncaring and the other one feels like you're being gossipy. So it does come down to individual preferences and understanding those preferences. But I think your other point is not being afraid to give express gratitude when there's something good, not necessarily when it's phenomenal only, when it was good, a daily good thing or a weekly good thing. I find myself more than ever recommending the book, The One Minute Manager, which came out in 1982, 37 years ago. It's a millennial itself, the book, The One Minute Manager, but it's daily specific positive feedback, catch people doing something right, and daily specific corrective feedback. It's very simple concept that can be you know, really, really impactful for any manager of any kind of team of any generation. It's amazing, isn't it? We're back to where we started at the beginning, that not much has changed, that what it is we right. know makes for great managers and great leadership is sort of still the same thing. Um, and maybe the one-minute manager is something we need to revive with everybody not having enough time to do it. So when you're talking to millennials, I want to go back to this notion, Six, 72%, you said, want feedback on a daily or weekly basis. Now, I know this has been part of the Gallup survey for ages, how much um, feedback do you expect who's talked to you? And people go, oh, my gosh, weekly, you must be kidding me. And you just now said daily. Any mm-hmm. advice about how to do that in a tactical, tangible, realistic way? Yeah, I think the answer, again, is the one-minute manager. It's are you having daily interactions? And, again, it might not be daily. It might be weekly. and depends on the size of your team. But if you are an active, involved manager, you are probably having dozens, if not hundreds, of touch points with the people you manage on a daily basis. Take the time to integrate specific praise. Hey, Wanda, I really like the way you asked that last question. Keep doing that and specific correction. Next time, I think we should do it this way or this would make it even better. That didn't even take a minute, but the notion of an annual review or even a quarterly review that says, Wanda, remember that thing you did seven months ago? Let's talk about that now. That just doesn't make sense in our fast-moving world. And I would point to social media. When you post a picture or a tweet or any kind of content, you get immediate feedback with a thumbs up or a smiley face. That's really what we're talking about here is just how am I doing? And a lot of companies have replaced their annual performance reviews with feedback on demand. Now, I think that that can be very onerous and kind of annoying to have to constantly update people. But again, I think good managers have always given people a little bit of feedback all the time on a regular basis. And that's what people want. Who doesn't want to know what they could keep doing better and what they could improve? I think that that's human nature. And I think good managers have always done that. But you have to be mindful and make sure that you take that time. Yeah. 
So I think one of my prior guests, I think it was Lee Carraher, said that the worst thing you can do with millennials is to hold your feedback for six months to give it the mid-year review. And in effect, what you're saying is you've been wrong for six months, but I'm just waiting now to tell you. Yeah, who wins in that situation? How does that help anybody? Yeah, I agree with that one. I agree with that one. Fascinating. Absolutely, totally fascinating. (laughs) I worked with one woman um, who was struggling with giving praise to her team. And instead of having her do it, we got the team together sort of for a Friday five where everybody Mm -hmm. said one thing they were grateful about from everybody else or appreciated or valued or something somebody had done good. You can take the burden off of you and put it back on the team and it gets the same, some of the same kind of power happens along the way. It's great. That's a really, really great tip. And I would just add to it for millennials who want more feedback or any employee who wants more feedback isn't getting it, take the pressure off of your direct manager for having to provide all of it. There are so many different people and sources you can go to for feedback. Sometimes you as the employee have to be creative about where you're getting that feedback. So I think team feedback and praise is really powerful. That's great. Sheila Heen um, in the book, Thanks for the Feedback, um, says that the single best question, I love this question, by the way, to ask any peer, any other superior, anybody in the organization, what's the one thing that if I did differently would make a difference to you? Mm. You can ask anybody that question anytime. And ask yourself. You know, I think a lot of us don't take the time to be self-reflective, and that's really powerful. I love that. (laughs) All right. Let's shift one last time, and I want to talk about conflict. Um, I'm convinced that at the end of the day, the companies that learn to do conflict well, meaning debate and contention and disagreement, I don't mean fistfights, but, um, you know, where we really can have a substantive debate, disagree and walk away still with a conclusion and all in the same boat, that that skill is where the company's really going to win at the end of the day. Now, this notion of remix that you have, a bit of the old and a bit of the new, What that means is we have to get better at managing conflict. At least that's what it sounds like to me, that we have to have that hard discussion of what what can we keep, what can't we keep. Now, what's your view on that? Well, none of this is necessarily easy. And I think that's really hard, really important to mention that I'm not saying, oh, this is great. It's like jumping on a dance floor and and dancing. You know, I personally find dancing very hard. (laughs) This is I find conflict kind of challenging. So this doesn't mean it's easy, but here is where I think the classic is really powerful. I think as a general rule, not everybody, but as a general rule, those who have been in the workforce longer have more experience handling conflict and in particular handling conflict face-to-face. A lot of young people are able to avoid face-to-face contact starting as young as when they're children because they can text in a fight with their best friend, right? They can bully as horrible as it is on social media. It's a lot harder to walk up to a kid and bully them than it is to send a text. And so I think that where a lot of Gen X and boomer leaders can really mentor and coach the next generation is number one, not to avoid conflict, but number two, how to handle it face-to-face, in-person when necessary in a positive way. So this is where I think the classic becomes really important to pass on to the next generation. I was brought into a company because a lot of young managers were reprimanding the employees they managed by instant message. And it was Mm -hmm. such a toxic environment that I'm very afraid that if the older generations don't teach conflict management skills to the next generation, that that's what the future is going to look like. So I think this is such an important topic for mentoring and coaching. Well, that's great advice. 
Okay. And if you're asking how is it that I do coaching as a manager, there's a topic to be working on um, with yourself as well as other people. In the time that we have left, Lindsay, you have a couple of things in here that I think are fast in your book that I think are fascinating. One is you have this phrase that geography isn't a destiny. And you also say meaning over money. Explain what you mean by those two phrases. Geography isn't destiny means that if you have an organization that is not in a cool location, you can still recruit young people. A lot of people are concerned if they're in the middle of the suburbs or they're not in a hip city center that they can't get young talent, and you can. I interviewed an insurance benefits company, not the sexiest of industries compared to technology and gaming and virtual reality, and they were recruiting fabulous young talent to a very small town in the Midwest, and the reason was that the CEO and the leadership team were incredibly committed to developing and mentoring young talent to the point where if you went to interview for an entry-level job at this company that has several hundred employees, the CEO was the person who greeted you at the door. You were guaranteed mentoring. There were development opportunities everywhere. So young people who had opportunities, there was one woman who said, I was choosing between a job in Hawaii and here in the small town Midwest, and she said, I chose this because of the development, because of the care that the leaders here showed to me. So what happens inside your walls and how people feel when they work for you, how important they feel as individuals, how much they feel it will contribute to their own development is much more important than being located in a cool place. That's geography is not destiny. Wow. Greeted by the CEO, even if you're coming for an entry-level job. Wow. You know what he said, Wanda? He said, what could be more important than my bringing the right people into this company? You know, we often talk about it. Every annual report everywhere says people are our most important asset, but we certainly don't behave that way on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, but he knew he had to to get people to this location, and I think that is so powerful. Okay, so the watchword here is we're coming back again and again and again to recruit and to retain the talent. It's about feeling that you are cared for by your manager, that you're getting some development, and that means that you are getting regular feedback, positive, constructive, you know, you've done good things, as well as one thing you can correct or improve, and that kind of development, coaching, training, mentoring is really what the watchword is as we look at the younger generation. And a lot of people do it for the younger generation, but who wouldn't want that? Everybody appreciates it. And that comes to your second topic, meaning over money, which is, yes, money is absolutely important. People need to pay their bills. But there are many, many studies that show that people who feel committed to their work, that feel that they're making a difference in their company, even if it's not, you know, saving the world, but really, truly making a difference to their customers, to their employees, to their colleagues, all of that matters so much more than a little bit more money in your paycheck. I was interviewing a a young person who said, yeah, of course my salary matters, my compensation matters, but when I see the number on the check, that's one minute out of my life. My experience and how I feel the rest of the time matters more to me. And many, many, many young people have said it's not just about the meaning of the work that I do, but it's the meaning that I feel in that job and how it will build me up. Because we live in a world where people are constantly threatening automation and a robot is going to take your job. 
So really, which has more currency to me, a little bit more cash or a job that is going to develop me into a lifelong learner and constantly evolving person who is going to be able to move on and find other opportunities if technology replaces the role that I currently have. So meaning is both the the outcome of the work that you do, but also the meaning that a company gives to you and yourself as kind of a free agent in this sort of crazy economy that we're all living in right now. Okay, and here we are back again to that same theme of coaching, developing, um, helping people get better and better in themselves and caring about them. I, I think that bodes well for those of us who believe in development activities. I think that's a really good sign. If you were giving, you got two minutes here, maximum. If you were giving advice to any manager or any CEO, for that matter, on dealing with multi-generations in the workforce, which, what's the one thing you'd add? The first thing I would add is think of generational difference not as a challenge, but as an opportunity. I think the individuals who see the diversity of their networks and the diversity of their teams as an asset are the ones who are going to come up with the innovative ideas and solutions that will win the future. The people who constantly get mired in the conflict and the challenges of it are going to be the ones who get stuck. Okay, that's that's pretty powerful, and that takes us right back to the to um, an inclusive and diverse workforce for every aspect, where it's not just on generational differences, but it's on every other aspect of of diversity, from gender to ethnicity to country of origin to life experience to mindset, for that matter, and generation is one more. That's exactly Lindsay. right. It's not easy, but it's powerful. And it's not going to change or go away. So if you don't embrace it, you're still going to have to deal with it. So why not take the positive view? Yeah, I think um, I think this notion of seeing the different generational differences and opportunity and looking for innovation, adaptable. I really like your metaphor, this notion of a blend of the old and a blend of the new, a bit of old, a bit of new, with some guidelines, with some guardrails, with some structure around it, so we don't get so far out of bounds that we're out totally out of control. And my guest today, Lindsay Pollock, and the book we've been talking about is The Remix. How to Lead and Succeed in a Multi-Generational Workforce. Lindsay, thanks for being a guest. Wanda, it was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 